All right, all right, all right. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Breathe Easy Practical pH Podcast. I am Megan Cyrilis, a practicing pulmonary hypertension physician in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I'm Kush Bugoyle, also a pH physician based in LA, California. We are two of the four pH nerds who will be hosting Practical pH, and you'll meet the two Catherines in our future podcasts. Okay, Kushboo, this is a very new podcast. Can you share with our listeners what to expect and why we're doing it? Sure. The point of Practical pH is to bring practical pH knowledge to the fingertips, well, ear tips, earbuds of pulmonologists, cardiologists, trainees, and really anyone interested in learning about pulmonary hypertension. We'll be inviting experts in the field to talk about a wide range of different topics within pulmonary hypertension with a focus on providing practical pearls. But of course, remember to consult with your local pH expert. And if you're not a medical professional, this podcast should not replace the advice of your doctor and is for informational purposes only. Thanks for those reminders. And now that we've got it out of the way, I am pumped to get started. So what's the first topic we'll be discussing today? Today, we'll be talking about chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, known as CTEF. We're lucky to be joined by Dr. Kim Kerr, who is a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego, and is the vice chief of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine. She's an international expert in all things CTEF. Well, Dr. Kerr, thank you so much for joining us today. We are very anxious to pick your brain about everything CTEF. So before we get too far along, though, can you just tell us briefly what CTEF is to make sure everyone in the audience is on the same page? Sure. Well, first, I'd like to thank both of you for inviting me to participate in this podcast on CTEF, my favorite subject. Um, so CTEF, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, is one of the five World Health Organization uh, classifications of pulmonary hypertension. And this is uh, group four. It's a unique form of pulmonary hypertension and one you don't want to miss because it can be potentially cured with surgery. Uh, the majority of these patients have a history of acute pulmonary embolism. And what appears to happen is these acute clots do not completely resolve. And a small percentage of patients with acute PE go on to develop this disease. And when the, what happens with these clots is they, they organize and they form scars in the pulmonary artery incorporated into the pulmonary artery, which results in narrowing of the arteries um, or a complete obstruction of the arteries, followed by a, a rise in pulmonary vascular resistance and ultimately right heart failure and death if left untreated. One thing I wanna mention though is not everybody has a history of venous thromboembolism. So that's why all patients with pulmonary hypertension need to be screened for CTEF. And it also should be on your radar when you're seeing patients with unexplained dyspnea. Awesome. Thank you. That was a great introduction. Lots of information to start taking apart as we dive into this a bit more. Just real quick, can you give us a little bit of a blip on how you became a CTEF expert, how this became your favorite subject? <laughs> Quite by accident. I, uh, I did my uh, clinical training up in San Francisco and then came down to UCSD as a research fellow. And I was actually in interested in ARDS. Um, and CTEF patients are prone to, to uh, something called reperfusion edema following surgery for CTEF. And it's really a localized high permeability edema that shares a lot of features with ARDS. So I was doing research, uh, looking at the mechanisms of this reperfusion edema and ways to mitigate it 
and CTEF patients. But it wasn't long before I got interested in the underlying disease itself, CTEF. I mean, it, it really was exciting to be able to take care of patients and cure them when previously they had been misdiagnosed for years and told that there was really no treatment for them to make them better. I think I was also tremendously lucky to have terrific clinical and uh, research mentors at UCSD. And I'll forever be grateful to Drs. Moser, Oje, Chanik, and Fadulo for uh, introducing me to this exciting career. So to keep things lively, we thought we'd start off with a case to help frame our questions. Um, so ready for the case? I'm ready. All right. So our patient is a 35-year-old woman with a history of a left lower extremity DVT and bilateral pulmonary emboli about five years ago. The event was considered unprovoked and she was treated with the Pixaban, but stopped after about nine months um, because she couldn't afford it. Over the last 12 months, she's had worsening shortness of breath, leg swelling, and chest pressure, um, and presented to an ER about six months before meeting you and was diagnosed with another, quote, acute PE, and then sent home on a Pixaban again. She reports she's been able to take this without uh, missing any doses, um, and but unfortunately her symptoms haven't improved. So she presents to pulmonary clinic for evaluation of this dyspnea. Dr. Kerr, obviously CTEF is on your differential. It's, that's what we're talking about today. So how likely is it that she has CTEF, you know, coming, having had a PE in the past and then showing up in clinic with this uh, symptom of shortness of breath? Well, I mean, just in the general population of patients who've had an acute PE, the, uh, the incidence of developing CTEF within the first couple of years really varies depending upon the study you look like, from less than 1% to almost 9%. And I think the variability depends upon study design and the definition of CTEF. Um, I think it's reasonable to use a rough estimate of the risk of CTEF after an QPE to be about 1% to 4%. I think she has a number of risk factors for having CTEF, and, and I really think that that's probably what this patient has. So you have a young, otherwise healthy female who has a history of a DVT and a PE treated, and then develops, it sounds like dyspnea, six months before the diagnosis of what was called recurrent PE. And now she has a number of symptoms that go along with pulmonary hypertension and right heart failure. She sounds like she's dysmic and she has lower extremity edema at this time. So I think it's very, very likely that that's what we're dealing with this in this patient. And what would be your next steps to really work this up and, and come to that diagnosis of CTEF? Well, fortunately we have guidelines to tell us what to do. And so um, we wanna do two things. One, we're suspicious of pulmonary hypertension. So we wanna get an echo for starters. And we'll see if there is evidence of elevated pulmonary artery pressures as well as right ventricular dysfunction in this patient. At the same time, we can, we can screen for other causes of dyspnea. Does she have left heart disease, for instance? or does she have conge uh, congenital heart disease that's been left undiagnosed? The other thing we wanna do is she's had a history of multiple PEs. Does she have um, residual pulmonary vascular obstruction? So we're gonna do perfusion imaging to see if there are persistent perfusion defects. 
Now we can do this um, with planar BQ imaging. We're looking for mismatch perfusion defects. We can do it with SPECT or some centers use dual energy CT. If they're normal, if there are no perfusion defects, we've taken the diagnose of CTEP off the table. So it's a great screening tool. On the other hand, we haven't made the diagnosis just with those two tests because VQ is a screening tool. We need to confirm that the perfusion defects are due to chronic thromboembolic disease. So she had already had a CTPA, you know, within the last year or so and was diagnosed with this recurrent acute PE. Are there clues that you would look for to try to determine whether this is chronic PE versus a new acute PE? No, absolutely. Definitely. They look very different in appearance. So an acute PE typically will be, um, will either there'll be no change in the caliber of the pulmonary arteries or perhaps will distend the pulmonary arteries um, versus when I talked about these chronic scars forming, they tend to contract the size of the vessels. So chronic, you see more vessel contraction. Um, the other is the appearance of the clot itself. So acute PEs may be in the center of the vessel and surrounded by contrast, giving you the donut sign in America or, or the, uh, the polo mint sign, as they call it in Europe. <laughs> um, or you may have lobular eccentric filling defects. That's not what you see with chronic thromboembolic disease. What you see with chronic disease is lining clot, intimal irregularities. You don't see clot in the center of the artery. They also, you can have, you know, clots partially reperfuse. So you end up with webs. They look like a spider web in the pulmonary artery or bands crossing the vessel, resulting in vessel narrowing. There also can be um, some other clues that you're dealing with a chronic process. So one might be if you see RVH, then you're not gonna see RVH. If you see um, enlarged pulmonary arteries, that may be suggestive that you're dealing with more of a chronic process. We also talk about mosaicism of lung perfusion. It's sort of a, uh, what you'll see are wedge-shaped perfusion defects, much like you'd see on a dual energy CT. So you can look for mosaic perfusion. Um, and then the last thing is, um, patients with chronic thromboembolic disease can develop systemic to pulmonary artery collaterals. So you may see an abundance of bronchial collateral vessels in the mediastinum, or even see collateral vessels coming from intercostal arteries, subclavian arteries, coronary arteries. So those would also be clues you're dealing with a chronic process. And you mentioned that, you know, the imaging findings, the ventilation perfusion scan, the echocardiogram, these are still very much a part of screening for CTEF and pulmonary hypertension. So what do we need to do to really definitively get to that diagnosis? Well, as you know, Kushbu, if we're going to um, determine this patient definitely is pulmonary hypertension and what type, we need to do a right heart catheterization. And so we're looking for, we're using the usual guidelines for other forms of pH. So a mean PA pressure greater than 20 and a PVR greater than two. Um, you know, a lot of times we talk about a wedge pressure being less than 15, but in reality, a lot of our patients with CTEF also have elevated wedge pressures. We have a high incidence of obesity and these patients can be older, you know, in the U.S. CTEF registry, the average age was 59. So these patients also have hypertension. There may be a component of left heart disease, too. 
But um, but yes, so we're looking for pulmonary hypertension with right heart catheterization. CT angiogram may be enough. You may be able to make the diagnosis of CTEF and even determine operability with that. If you're not certain though, there are times when you need to do pulmonary angiography to really, to really um, what we're looking for is where are these clots? Um, are they in proportion to the amount of pulmonary hypertension we're seeing? And um, are they surgically accessible? One last question that seems to always come up is whether or not we should be evaluating all patients diagnosed with CTEF for some sort of hy hypercoagulable problem. Um, doing lab tests and things. Is that something you would pursue in every patient that you're thinking about this diagnosis? I, I think that's an excellent question. So we know there are a number of thrombophilias that are linked with an increased risk of venous thromboembolism. But the only one that has been associated with the development of CTEF is the antiphospholipid syndrome, lupus anticoagulant. And it does have implications for anticoagulation. Um, in this patient population, and that we would we would not recommend DOAX, but use warfarin at this point in time. We see that in you know ten to twenty percent of our patients have antiphospholipid antibodies or lupus anticoagulant. So coming back to this patient, you know, let's say she's had all this workup, and it looks like you know we've got the diagnosis of, of CTEF. Yeah, and real quick before we move on, can we just actually summarize the key points that we need to make a diagnosis of CTEF to make sure we all have it? We talked about a lot of different testing modalities, so I want to make sure we are all on the same page. So I think one thing we didn't even talk about is to have a high index of suspicion. So if somebody's had an acute PE and after three to six months of anticoagulation, they have not returned to normal, you need to, to start to look for this disease. And so screening consists of a ventilation perfusion scan and an echocardiogram, um, and then confirmatory testing with um, some form of angi pulmonary angiography, either CT angiography or digital subtraction angiography to confirm the diagnosis of chronic thromboembolic disease and right heart catheterization to confirm pulmonary hypertension. Great. Okay. I think I've got it now. <laughs> so we have the diagnosis in our case. and you know, she's come back to clinic and is eager to hear about her treatment options. So can you give us an overview of what they are and then we can dive into them individually a bit more? What is recommended in patients who are determined to have operable disease is a procedure called pulmonary thromboendarterectomy, PTE, or pulmonary endarterectomy, PEA. You'll see both used in the literature and they're the exact same procedure. So this is a procedure where these chronic clots are actually removed. It is a big operation. It's done through median sternotomy. Patients are put on cardiopulmonary bypass and actually done under profound hypothermia. So patients are cooled down to 18 to 20 degrees centigrade um, for this procedure. And the reason that's done is, you may recall I mentioned these systemic to pulmonary artery collaterals. So even if a patient's on cardiopulmonary bypass, there's still backflow from these collaterals into the pulmonary arteries. So for the surgeons to have a completely bloodless field and do their dissection, the bypass machine needs to be turned off. It's called circulatory arrest for up to 20 minutes at a time while the surgeons take the clots out. This is a very different procedure from embolectomy. 
these clots are really incorporated into the wall. And so they need to be carefully dissected away from the wall. And it really requires a skilled, experienced surgeon to be able to do this very delicate surgery. Um, then the patients are warmed back up, come off bypass and uh, close back up. The um, other procedures can also be done if needed as well. So patients may have coronary artery disease um, that may need a cabbage, valve replacements, closures of PFOs at the same time. So other procedures can also be done at the same time. This procedure has the best chance of giving people uh, normal hemodynamics and quality of life. So we recommend that patients who are operative candidates, that this be the first choice of therapy. At experience centers, this procedure can be done with a less than 5% mortality. Uh, at UCSD, our mortality is about 2%. But again, I want to emphasize that, um, that this needs to be done in an experience center. It's not, you don't want to be the first patient being done by that surgeon. Apart from you know, this being the, the first go-to you know, treatment approach for people with CTEF, what makes someone a good candidate for pulmonary thromboendarterectomy? And are there any um, situations or character characteristics that makes them less of a successful candidate? You know, I'm glad you asked that question. So um, there are no absolute contraindications to surgery, um, except perhaps advanced parenchymal lung disease. So we have had patients referred to us who have, you know, uh, end-stage pulmonary fibrosis or emphysema, and those patients are not going to do very well. The other thing we look at sometimes as well, though, is is our, we want we want to be able to reperfuse good lung. Reperfusing bad lung does not help your patient at all and has the potential to make them worse. I think the other absolute contraindication would be a patient who has a comorbidity with a limited life expectancy. It's probably not worth putting them through a procedure like this. There are certain features that have been identified for um, this may be a higher risk procedure or have a less favorable outcome in patients. And these are patients who are functional class four, have severe pulmonary hypertension, not surprising, they're gonna have a higher um, mortality. Uh, patients who've had splenectomy have, tend to have more distal disease and residual pulmonary hypertension. Patients who do not have a history of DVT or PE. Patients who don't have lower lobe disease. It seems to be a different disease in those patients. These are not absolute contraindications. They just give us pause before we think about operating on those patients. Interesting. I didn't actually know some of those contraindications or thoughts <laughs> of when to not, not be so gung-ho to proceed. But I think I, I think... The, these decisions really need to be made by the surgical center. Mm -hmm. So I don't want doctors listening to this and saying, oh, you're not a candidate because of any of this. I think it's very important that, that patients be referred to centers that do the surgery and let them make the decision. Yeah, that's a really good point. So when, when physicians are referring, say, from a community hospital or a PH program um, that doesn't have a PTE program themselves... What should they do before they send and kind of how, do, how does that process work? I can tell you how it works here at UCSD. So we, um, it may start with just a phone call that the doctors call and say, hey, I have this patient. Do you think they may be a candidate? This is, this is their history. We'll say, sure. And we'll say, 
you know, send us your consult note or your HMP and what imaging that you have, and then we'll review it and then and then we'll get back to you and see if it's worth having having your patient come um, for evaluation and potential surgery, or we may call and say, hey, can you get this other study for this? Or we have some more questions. I think sort of basics, fundamentals though, are a history, a list of comorbidities, an echo report, and we actually like to review the imagings ourselves. And pe people don't need to do a formal PA gram. We frequently can get as much what, what we need from just a regular CT angiogram. And you talked about what that surgery really looks like and what it involves. Um, can you describe what that post-operative course looks like? Because a lot of patients are going to have that question of how long am I going to be in the hospital for? How big is this surgery? Yeah, good question. And you're right. They all have that question. <laughs> so, um, so patients typically remain intubated, go from the OR to the ICU, usually get extubated the next morning, unless we're concerned about development of that reperfusion injury that we talked about. That's one thing that we're looking for. Um, and then our average length of stay in the ICU is about four days. Um, and then total length of stay is about 12 days. So then they go up to the floor. We work on getting tubes out, lines of tubes out, um, getting them walking around, getting them anticoagulated. We then tell them when they go home, their limitation is no heavy lifting, no nothing over five or 10 pounds for about eight weeks after surgery until their sternum heals, but we want them out and walking. We also recommend lifelong anticoagulation in these patients. The last thing we want are for the clots to come back. And we've had to do repeat PTEs in patients who for one reason or another had lapses in their anticoagulation. We don't wanna to have to do that. Um, the question always comes up, what about DOAX versus warfarin? And I think we don't know the answer. We don't have any prospective randomized trials. There have been um, some retrospective reviews of patient populations and some smaller ones didn't really show any significant difference in rethrombosis between a DOAC and warfarin, but the largest one um, we have came out of our colleagues at Papworth in the UK. And they did find that their patients after surgery who were on DOAX were more likely to have recurrent thrombosis compared to vitamin K antagonists. What we do at UCSD at this point is ask that patients at least stay on warfarin for six months after surgery and then recognize that DOAX are a lot more convenient and that they can switch with the exception of our antiphospholipid syndrome patients or patients who've had a history of thrombosis on DOAX. We wouldn't want them to go back on that. Do you usually recommend a higher INR target postoperatively? <laughs> we do. We typically target an INR of 2.5 to 3.5. Um, I can't say that I have scientific data to base this on. Our, our, our idea was, though, that we really don't want them to dip into that subtherapeutic range. So, you know, kind of the bottom, the lower threshold of 2.5 is what we've suggested. And, that, you know, that's, a, that's a, not what we do in patients with higher risk of bleeding. So patients who've had bleeding complications or our older patients, we use the typical two to three. All right. So fortunately, our patient was deemed operable by the experts at UCSD. So she goes and has surgery. It all goes well. 
and she returns back to your pulmonary clinic for ongoing care. So what would you recommend in terms of sort of ongoing management, monitoring for these patients after they have a PTE surgery? So we, the first year, recommend uh, repeat ventilation perfusion scanning and echocardiography at six and 12 months. The perfusion scan is interesting in that it continues to improve over the next year. There are, there are a lot of perfusion shifts which take place after surgery. So it typically doesn't look normal at all. And we can see a steel phenomenon from areas that were not endarterectomized to newly endarterectomized areas. So that's why we like to get the Q scan at six months and 12 months. So it serves as a new baseline. It's also really the handy to have as a baseline as well. We usually get one of these scans before patients leave. Um, so that, you know, patient goes into the emergency room complaining of chest pain and everybody's worried they've had another PE. We can compare the perfusion scans and see if they're new perfusion defects. It's also helpful to us if someone comes back with recurrent pulmonary hypertension after surgery to, um, to see if there's evidence of recurrent thrombosis. And the echocardiogram also, the typically you'll see that the right ventricle is coming down in size prior to discharge, um, but that will continue to get better over the next six to 12 months. And then we typically, if our patients are doing well at that one year mark, have them come back once a year if they're able to. You mentioned the the idea of being able to monitor for recurrent pulmonary hypertension in these patients, yeah. and hence it's helpful to have that that baseline echocardiogram. What is the incidence of that happening? And, and if it does, if you do get recurrent pulmonary hypertension, what's your approach to that treating that pulmonary hypertension? Yeah, well, kind of depends on how you define it. <laughs> we have a we have a problem at UCSD admittedly, that we don't get all our patients back for follow-up because they come from all over the country, all over the world. Um, so we have to rely on some other centers to help us know what is the incidence of recurrent pulmonary hypertension. And there was a study from Cambridge, which um, was really revealing. So the first thing we learned was those early postoperative hemodynamics, you know, everybody comes out of the OR with a swan and you have some hemodynamics. There's not much correlation with those numbers and what they're going to look like in three to six months. What they found, though, was that about half the patients, when they cast them three to six months after their PTE surgery, had a mean PA pressure greater than 25. Yet most of them did great. It was, it was inconsequential. Um, what they did find, though, was those who had a mean PA pressure greater than 38 or a PVR greater than 425 dynes had a, a lower life expectancy. So that seemed to sort of be a threshold for survival. Again, this was done three to six months after surgery. Probably, you know, when you look at other center studies, they say about 30% of patients will have some residual pulmonary hypertension or recurrent pulmonary. to treat that just with symptoms, or is there a threshold above which you would say we'll treat this to prevent progression of small vessel disease? I don't, I don't think really have any guidelines for that. Mm. So it's sort of a combination of severity. What's, how's the right ventricle look? How does the patient feel? But fortunately, we now have options for that. Previously, we didn't. 
Yeah. So thinking about medical therapy for these patients that may have persistent pulmonary hypertension post um, post PTE surgery, mm-hmm. do you usually treat like regular pulmonary arterial hypertension or do you specifically use Rio Sigwat? And is that different than patients that were deemed inoperable and you're going to treat with medical therapy because they that's sort of their only option? Yeah. So we typically use Rio Sigwat. It is the only FDA approved drug with that specific indication. So we do use that. Um, but we may need to use other medications as well. And we all know there've been studies looking at, for instance, at Massey 1010 showed some benefit in, in reducing PVR and increasing six minute walk distance as well as uh, subcute traprostinol. So we definitely will use Rio Sigwat and it depends upon the, the specific patient if we need to use other medications. You know, why, why would they have residual pulmonary hypertension if you took all the clot out? Well, it's either that the patient has um, more distal clots that the surgeon couldn't get out, they're just too far, too far out, or we know that there's a vasculopathy that affects the, the small arterioles and the venules in these patients. Um, that is, is a little more like PAH and will respond to therapy. So for medical therapy, we really tailor it to the patients. But again, unless, we, we feel like after surgery, the patient really has significant pulmonary hypertension. We like to give them time to recover from surgery before committing them to a very expensive drug that they may not need. Speaking about drugs, do you when you have a high-risk patient, do you ever put them on therapy prior to their PTE surgery? And does that change their risk of undergoing that surgery? <laughs> mm, that's, a, that's a good question. Believe it or not, between 40 and 50% of patients who come to us, we already know their surgical candidates are coming to us on pH-targeted therapy. It may be Rio Sigwad, it may be other off-label use um, drugs. Does that help them? We don't really have evidence right now that treating most of those patients with pH-targeted therapy before surgery provides any benefit in the vast majority of patients. We do know studies have shown it delays referral for definitive therapy. You know, it's not uncommon. Patients said, well, my doctor wanted to see if drugs Mm -hmm. would help first. And it really just delayed their getting the surgery that they really needed. In the meantime, they spent a lot of time suffering uh, using drugs that weren't particularly helpful. There are rare circumstances where patients who are really quite high risk, so combination of sort of distal disease and very high PVR at times where we're concerned that there's also a component of arteriopathy as part of their disease process, where we've treated them with epoprostenol before surgery to help bring that PVR down, improve RV function, and then attempt surgery. But that's really rare. And I can't say we even have great data to support that. Another intervention that we, you know, hear and talk about is balloon pulmonary angioplasty. And I was wondering if you could just comment on that. um, And when does someone consider that intervention? That's very exciting. So, um, yeah, the new up and coming therapy for the indication is for patients who are not operative candidates or patients with recurrent pulmonary hypertension after pulmonary endarterectomy. Again, always first think about surgery for your patient population. Um, We have uh, the longest term data 
uh, on surgery, and it, it appears to be quite effective. But not everyone is a candidate. It may be that their clots are too distal, or they may have comorbidities, which makes the risk-benefit ratio of undergoing surgery uh, too great. And so those patients may be candidates for balloon pulmonary angioplasty, as well as we talked about patients who had recurrent pulmonary hypertension who may have very distal disease that can't be reached with surgery. We're starting to see some great results with BPA, but not the same as surgery. What we're seeing in our patient population, you know, studies came out of Japan and they showed us amazing uh, results hemodynamically. But the studies coming out of the US and Europe show a more modest reduction in PA pressure and pulmonary vascular resistance, about 30%. That's still better than nothing, right? That, that, that's really quite helpful. And it doesn't prove, you know, oxygenation, quality of life, functional class. So there's definitely benefit to BPA. We actually treat medically with Rio Siguat typically before we do BPA because of the, the race extension showed us that there are fewer, there are fewer complications with BPA if patients are pre-treated with Rio Siguat. So that's typically our practice. What are the complications that you worry about with BPA? And what would we want to be thinking about? Yeah. Well, the, you know, so overall there's a about a 10% risk of of complications, mortality versus been less than 1% here. Um, and the most common is vessel injury. Um, so wire perforation of a pulmonary artery. Um, there also, you can get a reperfusion edema, uh, access sites done through a central venous access as well. Um, and we're always watching for hemoptysis, a sign of that vessel, vessel injury. You know, the nice thing is it's done under conscious sedation. Mm -hmm. um, we typically just keep people overnight. They don't have any complications. They go home the next morning um, versus being in the hospital for 12 days. The, the disadvantage is we don't do all the lesions at once. So it requires multiple sessions uh, of coming back and forth. But it is an option for those patients who surgery can't fix them. It sounds like also similar to PTE should only be done at a center that has a lot of experience and a uh, careful, thoughtful approach to doing that procedure. It's pretty high risk. Yeah, Megan, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, a lot of people have balloons, but um, they really need to understand the disease of CTEF um, to understand where this in whom this procedure is indicated. Would you be able to give us just top three pearls, takeaway messages for our listeners of what you want them to know regarding CTEF? Absolutely. I think Everyone with pulmonary hypertension should be screened for CTEF. You don't want to miss this diagnosis, and you need to do it with uh, a perfusion scanning. Um, will help you screen and screen out CTEF if it's normal, but if it's abnormal, you need angiography. Two, you need experts to help you interpret the findings, the angiography um, in these patients. We talked about the differences between acute and chronic clot, but quite frankly, the findings of chronic thromboembolic disease can be quite subtle. So you need to have radiologists that are familiar with this disease. And if you don't, refer to a CTEF center um, and let them take a look at it. We have, we have challenging cases too, which is why every Friday, our multidisciplinary group sits down and reviews all the cases together with our radiologists, our surgeons, 
our pulmonary hypertension experts, our interventional cardiologists who do the BPA. We go over all these cases. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise with us. Um, We've certainly learned a lot and I'm sure all of our listeners will have as well. So thank you again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. It was fun. Well, folks, that concludes the first ever episode of Practical PH. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be recorded live at the American Thoracic Society Conference in Washington, D.C. next month. See you there.